Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, happy month of May, first of all. We're well past the midway point of the month of May, uh, but I didn't get a chance to tell you that yet, so I just wanted to say happy month of May, first of all. It is the ultimate month for racing. Yes, sir. Thank you. Happy Happy May month to you as well. Hard to say. I thought you were about to say Happy Mother's Day, but I'd accept that too. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Which is also in May. How awesome is May, right? Um, so rolling into episode number 17 of the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast, uh, the number 17 is very important in the history of NASCAR. Um, to me, though, Ben, when I think of the number 17, I think of the guy who drove that car when I was a kid, uh, th- when I was little, and I remember it, he drove the number 17 Western Auto Chevrolet. That is none other than the inimitable Daryl Waltrip, who is the driver of the week. We got to kick off episode 17 talking about old DW. Had, I mean, had some cool nicknames in his career, Ben. Jaws and, and DW are probably two of the most common ones. Um, but over the course of a Cup Series that career that began in the early to mid-1970s, wrapped up at the end of the 2000 season, Darrell Waltrip had a, uh, a big impact on NASCAR. I think there's no question about that. We've talked a, a good bit about Darrell uh, in the past, but um, you know, I think there's so many Darrell Waltrip stories and, and, and fun moments that people remember of DW, whether it's from him as a driver or him as a longtime broadcaster for NASCAR on Fox, uh, doing that for about 19 years or so. Guy just had a whole lot to uh, to do with the NASCAR the NASCAR world, and he's definitely a legend. But I'm going to kick it over to you to start out. Um, when I bring up the name Daryl Waltrip, what comes to mind to you, Ben? Well, I, I tell you the truth, Aaron. You know, back when he uh, was running on the short tracks around Franklin, Tennessee, and o- Owensboro, Kentucky, the number he actually ran on those short tracks. A lot of people may not know this was number 48. And 48 just happened to be his favorite number at that time. And he ran uh, cars that were orange and white, and he brought those colors to the Cup Series. But actually, the car that he ran first uh, in the Cup Series was number 95, and it was kind of a brownish, kind of a, sorry to say, kind of a pukish 
brownie color. You it can just say very, it's ugly. I've seen pictures you know, of it. It's ugly. It was. Yeah, it was. It, it wasn't very uh, attractive at all. And a lot of people may not realize this. This was the same car chassis that Mario Andretti won the 1967 Daytona 500 with. It was a Mar uh, Holman Moody car that had been reskinned with a 71 Mercury body on it, but it was the same chassis uh, that Mario drove to victory. And it was an old Holman Moody car that uh, Daryl Waltrip bought and they put the new body on it. He and Robert G of uh, Dale Earnhardt fame. Yep. And it was, uh, done a lot of work to that car and it was pretty ugly and and it just wasn't very attractive at all and that's the car he was driving and when bill france jr uh, basically told daryl your job is to get out there to give people something to pass and that didn't <laughs> didn't really sit very well with daryl in the beginning years and they didn't uh, and then, pass him much in the beginning years either no that's true he, he did get out there but he did tell the story once about how he thought he was just setting the world on fire and then here comes David Pearson in that 21 Perlator Mercury. And he said, as Daryl put it, here comes uh, David Pearson smoking a cigarette coming around him. And he thought, you know, that was kind of an ego killer there. He thought he was really doing well. And then here comes old David Pearson just cruising around him. And he thought, well, gosh, you know, I'm not doing all that hot out here at Talladega as, as well as I thought I was. But as time got, went on, he became a better Cup Series driver, as you know, and, and went to that white and uh, kind of a medium orange uh, color. And the reason he went to number 17 was because he was a huge David Pearson fan. And David Pearson drove the number 17 Holman Moody car. And by the way, the first uh, victory for the car, number 17, came 19 years after NASCAR was actually come to the strictly stock division in, in 1949. And it came March 17, 1968 at Bristol International Raceway, which became Bristol Motor Speedway. Later on, David Pearson took uh, the victory there and took 19 years for 17 to win. And as time went on, uh, you know, he, he went on with number 17. And when it came time to form his own car team, uh, he carried the number 17 from Hendrick Motorsports on to, uh, to form his own race team and won some, some pretty big races, including the 1992 Southern 500. Yep. But who could ever forget the 89 Daytona 500 that uh, he was just sputtering and sputtering and sputtering in those final laps. Were you there uh, for to, that race, Ben? I was. What uh, was yeah, what and, was the... Because the, I think everybody was expecting Dale Earnhardt to win, as they typically were, and he came close and didn't, as he typically did then. Uh, how seriously did, did you think Daryl had a shot at winning that race leading up to it? I, I'll be honest with you, Aaron. Everybody in the place that had a pulse was like, Daryl's got to run out of fuel. He cannot go the distance. There's just no way he can make it. And each time you pass the start-finish line, okay, okay, this is going to be the lap that he runs out of fuel. And then, okay, this is the lap that he's going to run out of fuel. There's just no way he can make it. So nobody it, expected him at any no. point. They thought he'd run out with a couple laps to go, and they just kind of right. got greedy. And and you know what's funny? Looking back, I watched that race not too long ago. It, had that happened, Ken Schrader would have won the Daytona 500. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and even Ken Schrader thought there's no way he can make it. I mean, nobody in probably in the state of Florida thought he could make it. It was that way. And every time, uh, you know, Daryl tells the story about how the, the engine would pick up and it would take off and then sputter again. And, and, you know, he'd start praying more and then all of a sudden it would pick back up. And, 
you know, that this one on, it was just like he was about to have a heart attack every time he went to the turns and it would sputter out again. Somehow, we don't know the whole story. I, I don't think he was cheating. I really don't. I just think that there was he had enough fuel to make it. But interestingly enough, talking about that race, uh, you know, he, he, he started from the 17th position. He was in pit stall 17. He was in garage stall 17. All these 17s, it was the 17, his daughter was 17 months old. She was born on the 17th, I think, and it was his 17th 17th try. Right, 17th try. All these 17s popped up, and he was driving car number 17, and he won the race. It was just one of those Cinderella stories where everything came together, and he wins the race. And it was just, uh, but, I mean, who knows, did he have... I don't think he had anything illegal in the car. I really don't. Because those types of things, you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years later, that kind of stuff does come out. It's never came out that something was illegal in the car. It just happened to be that the the pickup on the car would sputter. They would come back and sputter and come back. He wins the race. It was his only Daytona 500 victory in 89. And, and he did it for Hendrick Motorsports, and he won the race. So... Interesting story for for Daryl Walter. So we're we're talking about Daryl Walter right now, and and obviously a ton of good stories to tell about Daryl. I'm going to tell one in, in just a moment, but uh, just to speak hypothetically, Ben, you just touched on the fact that he that was his only Daytona 500 win. Imagine how different the career trajectories of Daryl Waltrip, and not just career trajectories, but their their whole legacy. How different it would have been had Daryl run out of fuel on the last lap of that race, and Ken Schrader wins a Daytona 500 which at the time would have been the second career win of his cup career. He just bagged his first at Talladega the year before in 1988. Um, imagine how different their careers would have been if Kenny Schrader starts that year off winning the Daytona 500 and Daryl Waltrip you know, retires. I mean, at that time, wouldn't he have to be regarded as the greatest driver to never win the Daytona 500? I mean, it, um, that, that, that really could have changed his legacy and, and taken a, quite a bit of it away from it and right. probably would have meant, you know, it certainly would have meant a ton to, to Kenny Schrader were he to win that. And I've talked to Schrader briefly about that before. And um, Kenny Schrader, if you guys have ever talked to him as a fan, is super gregarious and super cool to talk to. He's more guarded as a, when he's talking to somebody who's interviewing him. Not that he's not friendly, not that he's not professional, not that he's not pro- approachable. He just he's not going to offer you a whole lot in the way of like explaining something. So when I asked Trader about the races he did win, like at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 1989, it was you know well it was a big day, you know it meant a whole lot. But we still had another race to go the next week, so couldn't celebrate mm-hmm. too much. Um, mm-hmm. That's just how he was. But man, imagine the story Ken Trader would tell about winning Daytona 500, and he he came very close. Uh, ultimately, that was his best shot in terms of contending there in the, the late stages in 1990, the next year, he really had the fastest car and he started last and was absolutely blitz in the field up through there and was going to give Dale Earnhardt a run for his money and blew an engine. Um, but yeah, to DW Ben cool story. Don't remember where I heard this, saw it. Somebody told me, I don't know, but how Daryl Walter met Dale Earnhardt. Do you know that story at all? To be honest with you, Aaron, I have heard that, but probably not enough to tell. I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to take a shot at it. So this was uh, mid-1970s. Dale Earnhardt is not a Cup Series superstar. He's not even a Cup Series driver. He's down on his luck um, working at Robert G's shop in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, 
Daryl Waltrip is over there. Daryl Waltrip is a rising star in NASCAR, but by no means had he reached the the altitude of popularity and success he would soon enjoy. So Daryl's talking to Robert G. This is how I, I've 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 been told how I've read it, and this this guy walks up to him in this mustache and um he's drinking out of a bottle of jack daniels the half empty bottle of jack daniels just kind of nursing this bottle of liquor in the garage in the the shop and uh dw extends his hand says hi i'm daryl walter and earnhardt doesn't hold out his hand he just kind of motions over to the race car there and says it's your car um and uh so that's how they first met um, which is really pretty funny uh, that, that Dale kind of upstaged him a little bit, probably not intentionally, but he did have the the persona of being the intimidator long before anybody, I think, gave him that moniker. Um, but what's funny as a postscript to all this is, you know, a little over 20 years later, Daryl Waltrip's driving for Dale Earnhardt for part of the 1998 Cup season. Um, those guys raced against each other and had a whole lot of battles, Um Probably the most memorable Daryl Walter quote about Dale Earnhardt Ben was when he said, "With Earnhardt, every lap is a controlled crash." Um, this <laughs> yeah. was at a time when Dale was very uh, aggressive, not unlike every other race of his career, um, which is why we loved him. Um, but yeah, you know, DW and Dale were, were rivals. I mean, they're rivals in a sense that, like, because if you guys have been NASCAR fans for a little while, in my opinion, Ben. The best NASCAR rivalry of the last 10, 15 years is probably Kyle Busch and Brad Keselowski. Sadly, uh, for the most part, it seems like it's kind of fizzled out over the last four or five years. But that one that one was entertaining. You could take mm-hmm. a side in that one even if you didn't root for either of those drivers. That's the way it was at Dale Earnhardt and Darrell Waltrip. Uh, not a lot of people consider themselves fans of Darrell Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt. It was, uh, it's almost like you, know, you, you couldn't root for one if you rooted for the other. But right. it wasn't impossible, Ben, because my dad rooted for Daryl Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt. And I have asked him before, how in the world did you pull that off? And he just said, I just liked, I just liked watching both of them. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if he was a bandwagon fan <laughs> or what it was. Um, I, I, I can tell you this. I know this to be a fact. If you were at Dale Earnhardt's apartment house, whatever, wherever he was living at the time, and you could expect two things. He'd be up at six in the morning and his favorite all time song, take a guess what it was. Do you have any clue? I mean I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna throw a shot that it's an Elvis song. No. Johnny no, Cash. No, it was Leonard Skinnerd. Give me back my bullets. <laughs> Is that right? Fa- How did you that learn was, that, Ben? Uh, someone told me that years ago, and it would he would crank it up if you were if you spent the night at his house, and <laughs> and he would be up at six in the morning, That's ready awesome. to go work on the race car, and he'd crank it up so loud that it would blow the windows out of the house, and it would be "Give me back my bullets" by Leonard Skinner. That was his way of saying, "Get your butt out of bed." We got a race car to work on, and he'd go. He'd stay up till one, two in the morning working on a race car, and sleep just enough, probably on a sofa somewhere, and most likely not take off the clothes. In other words, if they were too greasy, he would. But you know, just enough to get some sleep so you could get back up and work on the race car, because the race car was all he thought about. And then what the story you were just talking about uh, was. You know, it's like the race car. It didn't matter who was in the room. 
the president of the United States could be in the room. It's like, move over so I can see what needs to be done to the race car. That was his way of, that was his only focus. And a lot of times he wasn't, in the early days, he wasn't as polished as he needed to be in settings, but he probably needed to be polished, right? Because he just wasn't. And, but that was his favorite song. And that's what got his day started to a bowl of Fruit Loops and Give Me Back My Bullets. By Leonard Skinner. That there, you heard it here first, folks. Ben, I got a question for you. <laughs> Who do you think yes. was more likely to go to have been to a Leonard Skinner concert, Dale Earnhardt or Daryl Waltrip? No, definitely it would have been uh, Dale Earnhardt for Leonard Skinner, and most likely Johnny Cash for Daryl Waltrip. I fully okay. believe that because you know, being Franklin, Tennessee, Owensboro, Kentucky, it had to be Daryl Waltrip for Johnny Cash or. Uh, you know, which is so country. funny because Johnny Cash and Dale Earnhardt had to share a nickname, the man in black. But I right. do agree. I, I do agree. Yeah. I think it's probably the same thing. Um, did you ever see Johnny Cash or Leonard Skinner perform? I have to be honest with you, no. And, and that's the regret of mine because I wish I would have. I heard a lot of both of those, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I have sure. to say, uh, in my era back on, on an eight track, but I have to say this okay, going to high school. My I, man, I I really want to beat my head against the wall because I had a couple of cars in high school. Really wish I had back. My brother had a '62 Oldsmobile, two door, three on the tree, kind of a medium green, but it had this really cool eight track player in it. And Linda Rodstadt, heart like a wheel. We just <laughs> turned. I mean, we just burned that thing up on an eight track. And the I gotta pause that, for a second because I bet nobody listening. I don't. I mean, I don't know anybody who knows what three on the tree is. I do. I've sat in a car that was three on the tree. So when you guys hear the phrase four on the floor," very much like uh, no. the cup car, it's a four-speed stick shift car. Well, mm-hmm. three on the tree before four on the floor was a three-speed car, and the the shift was almost right above where your normal um, your windshield wiper thing is now. Yeah. Right. That's where and, the three on the tree was. I sat in like right. a 1945 car when I was a kid, and it was uh, it was three on the tree, and that's how I learned that. And I thought that was so strange because I didn't, you know, when you just if you weren't exposed to that, you wouldn't know that. So that's yeah, a pretty cool and, point. I have actually seen like the modern version of Leonard Skinner before. They performed at the Speedway uh, about five years ago, and I got a chance to meet one of the original band members, uh, Gary Rossington. Oh wow! Probably the only Rock and Roll Hall of Famer I've met that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this discussion about NASCAR drivers and, and, um, and music has got me thinking, Ben, um, we advertise on the NAS, a lifetime of NASCAR podcast that we talk about historic things, the modern slant. And so this is one that we haven't discussed. I've never really discussed this with anybody. You remember like 10, 15, gosh, 20 years ago now, um, the fall race at Richmond, summer, fall race, whatever the September race at Richmond. Uh, it was called the Chevy Rock and Roll 400, and uh, some of the Chevy drivers would have special paint schemes with, you know, musicians on them. Like Dale Jr. had Stained one year. Somebody, I think, had Nickelback, Sugar mm-hmm. Ray, you know, 2001 to 2004 kind of bands. Imagine how cool it would have been if they did something like that in the 70s, where you had, like, David Pearson with a ZZ Top Pure Later paint scheme, or Dale Earnhardt with a... Um, with a Wrangler Leonard Skinner paint scheme or, you know, Richard Petty with a, an STP Elvis paint scheme or Johnny Cash or somebody like that. Now, that 
that would have been that would have brought the house down oh yeah for sure and you know not that it's going to make any difference to any maybe not to some of the fans that go to the nascar races today but there were times when you might see a pantsy klein and the mid six early 60s mm-hmm. go to bristol what was then as i said before bristol international raceway perform prior to the bristol race uh, there and then junior johnson win the race i mean when he was driving so sure. you always had some type of country music act that would perform prior to a lot of those early 60s uh, events and i think marty robbins actually uh, performed at a race or two in the early 60s and then believe it or not he loved driving in nascar races and sometimes he would actually perform on stage and then he would actually drive in races too which yep. was kind of kind of cool don hawk who was dale earnhardt's business manager for a long time also served in the same role for alan quickie later the general manager of dale earnhardt incorporated and now is the um chief racing development officer for speedway motorsports hawk and i talk somewhat regularly basically every time we see each other and um which is probably once a week or more um yeah hawk was telling me recently about how Marty Robbins had a clock in his race car when he would race at Nashville. And the reason he had a clock in his race car was he knew the exact hard out he had for when he had to pull into the pits and change clothes and get over to Grand Ole Opry so he could perform. And if if Marty Robbins was leading at Nashville and there's 14 laps to go and there's a caution flag and that clock hit that that target time – He's not going to win the race, dude. Had to pull in the pits. He had to hit his priority. He knew what his priority was. The, you know, the job came before the hobby. The job was Grand Ole Opry. The hobby was NASCAR, and he managed mm-hmm. it very well. Um, also, been somebody out there would probably nitpick us if we didn't. We talked about NASCAR drivers and, and musicians, sponsorships, and things like that. Um, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that Dale Earnhardt drove a you know, blue and yellow Wrangler car that said "Redheaded Stranger" on it one year for uh, for Willie Nelson. Um, yes, which was about as cool as it gets, and uh, right. you know, so they did a whole lot of that stuff. Um, and I I just thought it'd be really funny if you know you think about that and the the musicians you could have had in the seventies, eighties. Um, man, a Daryl Walsh of ACDC paint scheme, or how about a Kale Yarborough? Um, Bush beer ACDC paint scheme with Bond Scott's face on the hood. I'm telling mm-hmm. you, man, a die cast action could have come out of that die cast in the 1990s and it would have blown up. It would have gone to the moon. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, so we've been talking about these 70s drivers, 80s drivers, 90s drivers, music, all kinds of stuff. I'm going to get back to Daryl for a second. DW, uh, dessert, another story or two about Daryl Waltrip. First of all, I got to say, Ben, um, my experience with Daryl, he is a consummate professional, one of the coolest people to talk to. If I were forced to compare a modern driver to Daryl, it would unquestionably be Brad Keselowski, somebody who's outspoken, well-spoken, extremely opinionated, um, always a great quote, professional to deal with, and, you know, a hellacious driver as well. Um, But with Daryl, I wrote a story on on, on Daryl and Gary Nelson, gosh, seven years ago for Speed Sport Magazine, and... um, Mm -hmm. I gave Daryl a copy and I stood there and Daryl read the whole story and really liked it. Complimentary of it. You know, guys, just, just absolute professional. Every time I talk to Daryl, he's uh, you know, he's a super cool guy. His um, PR man, business manager, interior guy, when he drove for much of the time he drove the uh, the Western Auto car, 
is Keith Waltz. Keith is a close personal friend, mentor, everything to me. Keith uh, manages the the, uh, the souvenir program content at Charlotte Motor Speedway. It has for for decades now. Um, Keith is a, a, a PR legend. He is known throughout the sprint car racing world and the NASCAR racing world. Uh, super accomplished journalist. Uh, Keith edits what Ben and both of what Ben and I write. Um, mm-hmm. And I've known Keith for a long time. And uh, when Keith comes and works on editorial stuff at the Speedway, he sits right beside me. So we talk all the time. And Keith, uh, I meant to tell you this earlier, Ben. So for the last like couple months, every week, Keith's done this thing called Hat of the Week with me. Keith goes into his massive hat collection and digs out an old racing hat and puts it on my desk, and I go get it the next morning, and we talk about it. So there's been some absolutely badass ones coming out of there. Uh, one is a Daryl Waltrip original 1992 Western Auto racing hat. Another is uh, uh, the, the Chevy snapback. Um, it's like it's ball black hat with the red rope, the big Chevy bow tie logo snapback from the late 80s. Um, Shot most of it as a Toyota track, so I, I, I love Toyota. Um, I wear my Toyota hat very regularly. But as a NASCAR fan, you know, I love Chevy, so that's super cool. One of the neatest ones, though, Ben, this goes back to Daryl Walter. I promise that I, sometimes I, I, I mean, you guys who know me who are listening, obviously you know that I like to ramble. Ben and I both like to ramble. I mean, hell, we have a podcast. Of course we're going to do that, right? So mm-hmm. um, this hat that, that Keith brought in one day was black, had a teal um, bill on it, and a Gatorade logo. And so I was like, was this like a... Um, you know, a victory lane hat or, or what was this? And he's like, so Daryl's last race that he owned his own race team. If you recall this, Ben, 1998, Daryl uh, got a sponsorship from this company called Speedblock that was just mm-hmm. a big scam. It, they never paid them a dime and it cost Daryl his race team. And ultimately, Steve Park's injury at around the same time frame, you know, gave Daryl an opportunity to drive for Dale Earnhardt and sub for Steve Park in the number one car. But a few weeks before that, uh, Daryl, you know, no sponsorship. They show up to Darlington for the last race with the Daryl Walter Motorsports team, 98, spring of 98. And Daryl wanted to do something for his good friend, Tim Flock. Tim Flock is a NASCAR legend in his own right. You guys can look him up. Had a phenomenal resume, raced back in the 50s and 60s. Um, also worked for Charlotte Motor Speedway for a long time. Well, Tim was in, in really declining health, and Daryl wanted to do something to, to honor him, this guy he looked up to. And so Daryl painted his race car like the car Tim raced for Carl Kike for in the 60s, and it was number 300. So he shows up to the track and rolls out on the racetrack in a practice session, a car that's number 300. Now, obviously, NASCAR didn't like that, and Daryl obviously didn't care. Um, ultimately, they butted heads, and Daryl had to change the number back to 17 for qualifying the race. But he actually did go out on track in number 300 car. Um, but they didn't have a sponsor and they didn't want to wear all this speed block stuff anymore. So Keith and, and Daryl and those guys, um, got up with the folks at Gatorade and they gave them Gatorade uniforms and shirts and hats and stuff to wear just for this race. Kind of mm-hmm. like a throwback, but just for the uniforms. Cause you know, Daryl drove a Gatorade car for a long time in the seventies. Um, so I have one of those Gatorade hats, which is really mm-hmm. cool because like, you, mm-hmm. you know, you don't know. You know, you got to learn the story behind it. And Keith educated me on the story, which I thought was super cool. Um, and it, it goes to show you the fact that Gatorade was so nice to uh, to extend that that opportunity to Daryl and his team really speaks to how good of an impact and how great a reputation Daryl Waltrip has always had in NASCAR. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, like we've said, consummate professional. 
um, and an incredibly good sense of humor. Uh, you've talked to Daryl countless times, Ben. What's your favorite Daryl Walship story for you personally? Was there ever a time that he like called you out for wearing too big of you know blue jeans or anything like that? Well, there's just one. There's lots of times that we've laughed and uh, you know about certain things and. We, and I could talk to Daryl about things that, and we just both cackle over, over the telephone. He's so fun to talk to. But there's one story that, that immediately comes to mind. And, and I remember one time there at Charlotte Motor Speedway, he had done something on the racetrack, put somebody in the wall. I don't remember the exact story, but he got on the PA and made made some comments, you know, after the crash. And the, everybody in the, in the stands just booed. Uh, boot him for this and if I'm telling it correctly and he may basically said you know what if you don't like me we can just go down here to the local Kmart and we'll just duke it out you know one of those deals <laughs> and they booed him some more well as fate would have it later on in his career of course he gets Kmart as a sponsor yep. you know and it's just one of those deals like uh oh you know it's like what goes around comes around and of course, the media reminded him of it. You know, 15, 20 years ago, you asked everybody to come to the Kmart and duke it out, and now you've got Kmart as a sponsor. Why do you, how do you feel about that? And you know, it's like, well, I, you know, something to the effect of, I wanted him to come to Kmart, duke it out, now I wanted to come to Kmart to do their shopping or whatever he said. <laughs> but it was just one of those deals. I don't exactly know the exact story behind that, but it was just. Again, what goes around comes around, and uh, you know, is Daryl. Let me say this: Daryl is is extremely, uh, and still is extremely uh, outspoken about sure. what he thinks, and there's no real filter there. And and that's why we that's, love it. Uh, exactly, and that's why you know, back in the '70s, you know, he and and Kel Yarborough would get into it just about every week, and that was at the time when the movie Jaws had come out, and. You know, the beaches were deserted because everybody's scared to death of this, you know, going to the beach because of the, the Jaws movie. And by the way, if you've not seen it, you can still find it online. And it was a pretty scary movie. You know, this big, huge, humongous shark was in the waters and it was attacking people and stuff. I'm you think Dale great. Earnhardt ever went and saw Jaws? Uh, I don't know. but it, No, probably not because he got enough of Jaws every week on the racetrack. But <laughs> I you set know, you up just, perfectly, Ben. <laughs> you that did. was an alley-oop, and you good. slammed it down. I did. I did. And that was good. I appreciate the appreciate the little layup there. Yeah, man. But, uh, it, you know, it was just one of those deals where, uh, you know, Kale – see, that was the difference between Kale and Daryl. You know, Kale was one of the guys – if you want, wanted to talk to him, you'd say, well, can you tell us about the car? Yeah, boy, the car was great. And can you expand on that? The car was really great. And Kale never said a lot. Whereas Daryl was like, you, you, okay, Daryl, thanks. That was a, I really appreciate that quote. That's enough. Thanks. And he's not, and he's still talking. Yeah, that's and he's the thing. Still you wait, get more wait, answers from Daryl in one question yeah, than you did yeah, with Kale with ten. Let me tell you just a little bit more. And <laughs> Daryl, and see, that's why the drivers really he got under everybody's skin, especially Bobby and Kale and Buddy Baker and Richard Petty and David Pearson, because. Daryl would say, you know what, I'm going to go to Darlington next week and I'm going to kick everybody's butt. And this is a new guy. This is a new a new face sure. and a new guy. And they didn't do that then. There was no bravado. No. It was it was NASCAR guys were friends. Their families traveled together. They right. had a driver's lounge. Imagine a driver's lounge now, Ben. There's no way that would happen. There was no. It was much more of a familial atmosphere among drivers. Right. And then they had and this showman show up, this guy who was just unlike anything the NASCAR community 
had ever seen. And I don't care what Big Bill France would have said then. I know he loved it. Oh, yeah, of course. And see, Daryl would say all this stuff to them and tell the media this stuff. And then he'd go out and kick their butt. And it just really got under everybody's skin. It got on their nerves. But he was that good of a race car driver. And he would just say, you know what? I'm just going to go out there at Darlington next week. And they're just, I'm just going to beat them. And I'm going to tell Dagan the week after. And I'm going to beat them. And every week it would be, he would go out there and kick their tail. And, you know, he was just one of those kinds of guys that you didn't necessarily not like him. But he would just do what he said he was going to do. And that's why he was so successful. You know, with three championships and then 84 victories. And he just came in and did what he said he was going to do. And it just, like, irked him so bad. And, you know, and and he and Bobby Allison had three years, 81, 82, and 83. And they just went at each other. Matter of fact, today, just for, for kicks and giggles, I, I turned on the 83 Talladega 500 on That was the YouTube. 88 lead changes, right? I don't know about that. No, I think that was 1984, but this one okay. was just the 83 Talladega race, and it came down to Dale Earnhardt winning for Bud Moore, but there was Bobby and Daryl duking it out with a lap to go, and Bobby was blocking, and, you know, he, if I can't win, I don't want Daryl to win. That was the way it <laughs> well, was. Oh, that Allison-Walter rivalry, Ben. Yeah. That's, and, that's, and what, if, that's and, the way it was for, right. for multiple uh, generations. Yeah, exactly. And they just did not care. See, at first they liked each other when they, you know, came in and respected each other until they started beating each other. And after that, there was just this thing. And it, yep. it carried over to, da- to Davey and and Daryl Waltrip. And, and, you know, that it just carried over. So anyway, long story short, they just, it was just that, that thing that, you know, I re- somewhat respect you, but I don't have to like you. And, and yep. it continued on. So anyway, it was just Daryl was a great driver, and he he proved he was a great driver, and uh, and then he went on to have a great broadcast career for nearly twenty years, and just was a great asset to the sport. And he did help to elevate that the sport to a, a different level, just like Bobby did and Kale did, Buddy Richard, all of them have played a part in, in making it a better sport. Absolutely, and one of the things Daryl Waltrip accomplished is, uh, you know, it's it's May, Ben, and, and in the month of May, to me, means Charlotte Motor Speedway, and also, yes, the Indianapolis 500, and also, yes, the Monaco Grand Prix, but the world's eyes shift to Charlotte Motor Speedway for a, a, a healthy portion of the month of May. It's what we're known for, and, and we love that, um, but how what a better way to tie it in as we get ready for the Coca-Cola 600, which is almost here already, than to discuss who won more Coca-Cola 600s than anybody else. Do you know who the answer to that question, Ben? I have to say Daryl Waltrip. It is Daryl Waltrip. Daryl Waltrip won five Coca-Cola 600s. He's the only man to do that. Had I not known that, I would have absolutely said it was Jimmy Johnson. Um, but it's not. Daryl Waltrip is the only guy to win five Coke 600s. Um, Guy was absolutely incredible at Charlotte. Also won the first all-star race ever, 1985 at Charlotte, which we've mm-hmm. discussed before when he was a junior Johnson. And he had a car that was completely legal and completely accidentally blew his engine on the last lap crossing the finish line. Um, and junior Johnson will stick to that story. I always did. And will Daryl. But 
Darrell Waltrip was so successful at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I think it takes a, uh, a certain type of race driver to be really successful at Charlotte, Ben. You notice a lot of the guys, not all the guys, but a lot of guys who are really good now at Charlotte um, came from a dirt background or just came from a, a slightly less common background um, when, when they got to the Cup Series, and they're really good at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Casey mm-hmm. Kane's an example. Casey Kane's career was extended because of his success in the spring and fall at Charlotte, and it's been the case for several guys. Um, but as we get into the month of May, I feel like we need to talk a lot about Charlotte Motor Speedway. It, it's, uh, I'm not going to, you know, try to over promote, but I'm at the same time, I'm going to talk about this place because it's where I grew up going and, um, you know, to my friends and family, I'm, it's synonymous with me. And so it's probably more synonymous with me than just about anything. So, um, We've talked on this podcast a lot about the fact that I grew up going to the Speedway and been going there since I was four years old. And I often tell people when I meet them, they ask me about it. And I'll say, you know, I've been there so many times that eventually they just started paying me to keep me around. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the place has a ton of history. uh, You know, you guys probably know a little bit about the way it was, you know, how it came about. Bruton Smith and Curtis Turner, um, you know, built this racetrack. the infield is really funny because they, the track was built over a, a huge bed of concrete. They had to blow up the concrete to build the racetrack. It cost more money than they had to finish blowing up the concrete. So the track fell in hard times for a little bit, um, but they got through that. Richard Howard did a phenomenal job. He's a guy worth looking up if you guys want. Richard Howard did a great job of keeping the track afloat in the 1970s. And the guy, to me, that, that really kind of ushered in a new era of showmanship in NASCAR is uh, the great A.J. Humpy Wheeler, longtime general manager at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Humpy came up with a, a lot of crazy, crazy things and um, was really a gregarious uh, icon in the sport from the 1970s through the 2000s. He finally retired from the Speedway in 2008, but Humpy's a hero of mine. Burton is, of course, a hero of mine because you don't have Charlotte, you don't have a lot of what we know in NASCAR you don't have the driver intros. You don't have all kinds of things. You don't have the pre-race shows anywhere else. You don't have the pre-race military spectacular. They do. We do at Charlotte every May. You don't have that without Bruton. Bruton always has wanted to um, to raise the bar, to do what was never done. And Marcus has carried on that mantle. Um, and Greg Walter, the GM now, who is top-notch, one of my favorite people on this earth. Greg is a fantastic guy to work for. I can't say enough about Greg. He he follows in that mold, Ben, of somebody mm-hmm. who's not afraid to try new things. Greg started getting us uh, Ferris wheels for the Roval, which I thought was really cool. I never in my life thought that Charlotte Motor Speedway could be a road course with a Ferris wheel in the turn, and he made it work. They they find a way. We find a way. Mm-hmm. And um, But that place is really special to me, Ben. I know it's special to you, too, because you grew up not too far from there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to defer to you. What are, what are one or two special memories you have of the Speedway of maybe covering a race or just uh, some, some battle that, that you witnessed, whether it's as a fan, as a journalist, whatever it may be, that has always stuck out to you? Well, you know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Charlotte Motor Speedway is the fact that as a fan going to races uh, before I started writing uh, in 1983 was the fact it was just Charlotte Motor Speedway. I mean, it, and I say that in the respect that it's always been the track. I remember growing up there watching 
uh, you know, the greats like Buddy Baker, Richard Petty, of course, yep. the Allisons. I mean, what I'm trying to say is when you go to Charlotte, it's like, man, it is the track that you know that is going to be the, a phenomenal race, whether it be the 600 in May or whether it be the five, what was the 500 in October. And when you would win at Charlotte, you get that special trophy that looks unlike anything else, for one thing. And then to win at Charlotte meant that you were somebody. And so many of these guys, like Jeff Gordon, Matt Kenseth, David Pearson, uh, so many drivers had, had collected, ironically, their first Cup Series victory in what is the toughest race on the circuit because it's so long. And when Bruton Smith opened the track and with Curtis Turner uh, in 1960, they're like, okay, we got to do something different. We, we don't want 500 miles. There's other tracks that have 500 miles. Right. We're going to, we're going to add a hundred miles to this. And those initial years, it's like, wow, how are you going to, you know, get cars to last 600 miles? And there was some real concern the first year or two. Are we going to have a winner to go 600 miles because that was a very grueling amount of time and an yes. amount of miles for five hours the first one they were yeah, in exactly for that type of race car and those cars back then really weren't race cars they were cars off the showroom floor if you will and a lot of those cars were not showroom material though they were cars that were almost what you might even call out of the driveway or the backyard so to speak stock cars you might say stock cars yeah right out and they had roll bars and things to conform to what the rule book was i mean but they weren't they weren't race cars per se so could a car last in a hundred degree heat in the middle of may for 600 miles the best part of it was that's what brought the fans in to see who would who could endure that length of race not only man and machine it was both you know could it be done sure and so i mean it was the most grueling race and i actually have just written a piece for speed sport about why 600 miles over over 500 the extra 100 miles was a mental thing for the drivers but it was also a grueling extra 100 miles for that car because you got to remember okay, now I've done 500 miles. Can I make the extra 100 miles physically and can my car make it? So, yeah, it's just it's just a different race. It's just more for the driver and car to endure. And it's always been that way. So that's what made it such an incredible race all these years. And there's a lot of strategy to that. Even today, how do I make that extra you know, 100 miles and, and go to victory lane? We've seen so many different winners in that race because of that and yeah it's a it's a very special strategy that you have to have so yeah and and you know i think back on kyle petty winning the 600 i think about austin Dillon. i think about you know bobby allison had won the race so many times and you know there's a race also that comes to mind too aaron mm -hmm. that that daryl waltrip could have been a six-time coca-cola 600 winner in 1980 and that i gotta say that has to be the best uh coca-cola or world 600 of all time was between benny D. W. and benny parsons yep yes sir and i remember that when i was not writing at the time i didn't start writing till three years later so you were just kind of drinking in the stands well i wasn't drinking in the stands i was, I was actually sitting on the porch in my at my house i was living in welcome not far from where rcr is located today but 
I was I was on the edge of my seat every other lap. They were switching uh, into the lead the last yeah. thirty. Oh, it's on YouTube. Laps. You guys got to see nineteen eighty World Six Hundred. That battle. It, we've tweeted it, really, it before. It's 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 something. It was the longest day of all, and because there was there was rain in the area, they kept stopping it. But I mean, the last thirty or forty laps of that thing was oh my gosh, it was the best. 600 of all time and benny parsons ended up winning it over daryl but golly if you could go back and watch that thing over and over and over it was uh, benny would lead and then daryl would lead and benny would lead finally benny got it but it was those guys were worn slap out and it was just something else my uh my childhood probably the more one of the more memorable 600s i remember as a kid was uh 1996 when dale jarrett won um i think that one might have been I can't remember if it was rain shortened. I, I get the feeling that it was, um, but this was when Dale Jarrett was driving the number eighty-eight Ford Quality Care car. He was, uh, you know, he had it. Yeah, so the year before, the year after that was rain delayed, but Dale Jarrett won it in '96. Um, that's one that 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 stuck out to me. That was at a time when I was, you know, just eating, breathing, sleeping, living NASCAR as a kid. Um, so that one sticks out. Twenty years later, Ben. Um, I'm going to throw one your way um, that you described a 600. It was memorable because of how unpredictable it was. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw one out that some of you guys, you know, far more recent, but 2016 Coca-Cola 600. First one um, of me working with the Speedway. That's at the Speedway. Uh, it was. It's also the fastest Coca-Cola 600 bent, and it's probably, it might always be the fastest because it was the last Coca-Cola 600 raced uh, before the stage format so you didn't have you know three or four guaranteed caution flags um but this race um uh, martin truex jr won the pole and martin truex jr took the lead and he led and he led and he led and he led martin truex jr led 392 laps out of 400 is the most dominant performance I have ever seen um, in my life as as a race fan uh, for a 600-mile race for somebody to nearly... I mean, if they didn't have green flag pit stops, he'd have led all 400. And I get mm-hmm. that some people think, oh, that's so boring, you're not passing. I thought it was really cool. Um, you got to respect... The, some somebody anytime somebody does something in NASCAR bend that's never really been done before, I find it fascinating. And watching Martin Truex Jr. and that race car hook the bottom for 400 laps, it it didn't it didn't matter what how how much wear he had on his tires, that car drove like it had fresh tires all night. It was like if you were playing a NASCAR video game and you turned everybody else's tire wear to normal and you turned yours off. That's what it was like. They had that thing hooked up so much it was unreal. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what's wild is at that time, Truex, that was only his fourth career win. Um, you know, now he's won three already in, in 2021 and will probably end up with, you know, twice that many. But, and he's won another 600 since then. But that 2016 Coca-Cola 600 stood out to me, Ben. It was a long day for me. I think I worked 18 or 19 hours. Um, which, you know, first of all, in PR, that's what you do. You work long hours. Second of all, you love what you do because of what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a really neat experience for me. Um, and then watching this guy absolutely dominate that race, I, I, was, I was enthralled by it. I thought it was really cool. Um, pretty yeah, that, neat memory for me. 
the only thing missing that night was the CD player for him because he was just that far ahead. He just needed, you know, the, the C or the you know some M CD player to play because, like I, like you said, he was so far ahead. He was in a different time zone all night and. What they did to that car, I don't know, but it was, man, he was out front dominant all night long. And maybe if somebody was trying to convince NASCAR to do the segments, that was the, <laughs> I guess that was the uh, deciding factor. So, yeah, maybe we need to do segments because he, uh, he's, he was out front for sure. No question about it. Yeah. And, and I just thought that was a really cool one. Um, but there, there have been a lot of memorable ones. Um, when I'm, my, I always went to the All Star Race as a kid, and then the Fall Xfinity Race. So my first exposure to the 600 was pole night in 2001. It was the year Dale Earnhardt had passed away. Um, Kevin Harvick's a rookie. Dale Jr.'s second year. Um, I remember going with my dad and my friend Chris and his dad Mark, and so we go to qualifying. Um, the demand for Dale Earnhardt merchandise was incredible. They had, they were almost out of everything Dale Earnhardt at the souvenir trailers. Um, they were almost out of everything Dale Earnhardt Jr. at the souvenir trailers. And I remember somebody in our group asking me, who do you think is going to win the poll? And this just goes to show you how good my prognostication skills are. I was like, I think Dale Jarrett's got a really good shot. You know, I just felt like he would. What happened to Dale Jarrett in qualifying? He got loose and backed in the wall and started 37th. So I had a, I did a horrible job of predicting. Instead, this guy in an O2 car, like seriously, Ben, who does well in an O2 car? Like, just doesn't. If the, if a number starts with zero, it's like all right. I mean that he can't be that fast, right? Like yeah, you're trained yeah. to think like O2 is you know that's T W Taylor. That's a guy filling out the field who maybe if you put him in a faster car that's not number O2, probably do pretty well. But O2 doesn't do anything. So this kid named Ryan Newman comes out and blitzes the field and wins the pole. Um, I mean, so many people, like the word, you know, the word that night was just, who is Ryan Newman? And God, he he, he definitely let us know because um, he won about 700 poles over the next few years. But um, that was a memorable one for me just because it was just like, really? The O2 car? Who is this dude? Um but, you know, Newman has not won a 600. Maybe he wins it this year. You never know. And that's one of the cool things to wrap up about the Coca-Cola 600 in this discussion, Ben, is you never know who's going to win because there's that extra 100 miles. You could blow a tire. You could have a bad pit stop because you got to have more pit stops. You could have a bad restart. Somebody can stretch fuel out of nowhere. Casey Mears. It could rain and the guy who dominated pits and the guy who stays out wins, David Rudiman. There's just so many different ways. That race, to me, is as unpredictable, if not more unpredictable, than a road course when you factor in the difficulty on the drivers, cars, crews, um, and then the added elements of strategy. So even though there are four stages of 100 laps each, um, there's still that element of, of, of unpredictability, that, that air of uncertainty. And I think that's one of the things that draws people to the Coca-Cola 600. It's the longest race. Um, it's been the Coca-Cola 600 since 1985. Uh, we should say it was the World 600 before that. That's what my granddaddy, my grandmother and granddaddy still call it. It's the World 600. Um, in 85, we got the sponsorship. They called it the Coca-Cola World 600. And then from 86 on, it's been the Coca-Cola 600. If you really want to bury into semantics, it was the Coca-Cola Racing Family 600. But really, it's been the Coca-Cola 600 since the mid-80s. Um, but, you know, I'm really excited for that race, Ben. I hope you are as well. Yeah. Oh, I am. Um, I am. And, you and, know, you, and, you know, uh, Aaron and 
here's the thing. I mean, what a be- there's no better race for us to, you know, put COVID in the past and go back to racing. I, I mean, I can't think of a better race to, to kick it back off. And Yes, you know, open grandstands, open, open grandstands. grandstands. You can come. It doesn't matter. There's no limited seating. There's not pod seating. You want to get, you know, get everybody and their brother Y'all can show up. There, there's no limited seating, and that is so cool that we're opening it up. I think a lot of people have worked very hard to make that happen, um, and yeah. you know we're and very excited about it as a speedway. And just for me personally, man, you know, it's it's a good feeling to see a is to see a bunch of people in the grandstands. We had that at the drag race, the NGK and Ticket NHRA Four Wide Nationals, but for the 600, it's a whole new animal. It's going to be so it, great it to see so many people roaring in the grandstands on race day. Yeah, it is, and you know we. Uh, we went to a function tonight. My wife, Eva, and I went to, over to RCR uh, over at the Richard Childress Winery tonight and unveiled a car that Austin Dillon is going to drive in the 600 and a very patriotic paint scheme. It's a beautiful car. And, you know, it just felt really good to to be over there and to, to just... It builds it just, up that excitement. That's one thing does. about the 600. There's a buildup to it. Honest to God, there's a buildup to it that might even trump the Daytona 500. I think there's just so. that and feeling that over, over a period of weeks, Ben, you know what it's like. There's just that feeling like you're getting you're getting closer to it. You're getting closer to it. You're like, all right, this is a big deal. Like, you know, and everything about the 600 is big. It's not just a race, man. Qualifying is big. Like, the, if you win the pole for the 600, that's just as big a deal as winning the pole for the Daytona 500 to me. Um, yeah, I think, I think so. You know, we have, we've been through a lot over the past couple of years, and, and a lot has changed as far as the way the media has covered races and the way we have been limited and the way we've, you know, we've had to refrain from going in the garage to talk to our friends. We've had to cover things as far as Zoom and yeah, and and those types of things. And we've gotten basically, I mean, when I went to Martinsville and Bristol, I was honored to be there. But quite frankly, I was watching the flat screens in the press box and I kept saying you idiot why why don't you just stay home if you're going to watch the flat screens watch the track watch the track and so now it's it's going to feel good to be able to go and and I'm not sure what the protocols are quite yet as far as being able to go but I am so excited to see that the fans are going to be able to get you know fill up the stands and and just enjoy races the day today was so beautiful and I'm excited that we're getting back and absolutely and a, and a lot of changes have been made, but but you know what? We're going to get back to racing. We're going to get back to going in the garage areas. And and today was great. I was able to talk to Austin Dillon and to Richard Childress and Johnny Morris. And, and that just, car, I'm oh looking at that gosh. car, by the way, right now, Ben. That car is bad to the bone. It is. It's a beautiful car. The three car. Yep. Uh, Red, white, and blue. Big blue on the side. Stars and stripes. Man, that thing's tough. It is. It's beautiful. And I'm just saying to all the fans, on behalf of Aaron and myself, and I'm sure a lot of others, just thank you, thank you, thank you for just being patient. And we are both so excited to be going back to the track, and thank you for coming to the racetracks again. And yeah, you know, we're I'm just I'm telling you from the heart, we're so excited to get back to racing. And it's a real racing in front of a big crowd, man. That's what it's all about. I know it's just. And you know what? We're all guilty of taking things for granted, and 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 you you just cannot say thanks enough for being, you know, just be, we've all been on the sidelines. Okay, we've learned a lot in the past year and a half or two years, and we just take we're all guilty of taking things for granted. Sure. But I've 
I'm not taking anything for granted anymore, man. I am so excited about getting back to the track and enough said. I'm just, I'm excited to get back. I think we're in for a good show the whole weekend of the 600. For me personally, I'm really excited to see the Alsco Uniforms 300, the Xfinity race. Um, Josh Berry driving the eight car for Junior Motorsports. Josh Berry is one of the most fantastic stories in that running in NASCAR right now. Josh, long time, more than a decade of driving late models for Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s Junior Motorsports team. And Josh finally got the golden opportunity he waited so long for after winning the late model national championship last year. Uh, Dale Jr. gave him about a half season of races in the eight car. And then he goes out and wins at Martinsville and came also close to winning at Darlington and at Dover. Uh, very well could have three wins. Uh, fun fact, Junior Motorsports in all its years of racing has never won an Xfinity race at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Um, their only win at Charlotte was with Casey Kane in a truck race in 2014. They have never won between Dale Jr., Brad Keselowski, Chase Elliott, all these stars drive those cars there. They've never bagged a win at Charlotte. And I think it would be really cool to see Josh Berry put that number eight car in victory lane. Um, he hasn't, I don't think he's raced at Charlotte, so that's going to be fun for him. Um, but those Junior Motorsports cars are fast right now. Wouldn't shock me to see any of them win. It, it's just kind of strange to me, Ben, that like as good as they are, you know, they've never won at America's Home for Racing. So maybe this is the year. Who knows? Um, it's going to be a really unpredictable week of, of racing action. Friday's the, the uh, North Carolina Education Lottery 200 Truck Series race. Kyle Busch is not entered in it, as far as I understand. So that means the door is wide open for somebody else to surprise us. Then you got Saturday, you got qualifying for the 600 then the Xfinity race, then the ARCA race, then finally the granddaddy of them all, the Coca-Cola 600 on Sunday, May 30th. I can't wait for it, Ben. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. That race is wide open. I don't want to make a pick yet, but if I had to, I'll take Martin Truex Jr. again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you took you took my pick. I oh, said, really? I really that's, but you know what? I got to tell you something, man. I if you just go with just a good, just a cool look on the car, I got to go with Austin. Man, that car is bad looking. I'm telling so you. So we're just it, picking it, the Bass Pro Shops guys, basically. I guess so. I, I'm, I'm telling you, if, if you just if you want to go for paint scheme along, alone, yeah. and, and let's let's go with some talent too. I got I got to say Austin. He he's proven he can win that race. That's uh, that's very true. And you know I don't. Yeah. Johnny Morris is not Johnny Morris of Bass Pro Shops is not paying us, but it just so happens that those Bass hey. Pro cars are good in the 600. Man, they keep winning it. And and you know what I got to say, Johnny Morris is one of the coolest guys in the world. If you want to just find a down to earth, just cool guy, and the uh, imagine this jeans, just t-shirt casual dude propped uh drinking a coke or whatever gotta I mean, be a coke just, man coke 600 it's gotta be a coke right yeah and and just feet propped up just want to talk racing or fishing i don't know what the man's worth but I mean, i'm just saying he is down to earth i just like the guy big time i you'd like him if you had a chance to meet him he just you'd never know if you didn't yeah. know who he was i mean i'm just telling i love people like that they just <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah, I've seen Johnny talking to Tony Stewart before. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. As a matter of fact, kind of funny, the first time I ever met Martin Truex Jr. was in an autograph session when I was in high school at Bass Pro Shops at Concord Mills outside Charlotte Motor Speedway. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first time I'd been to a Bass Pro, and it was to meet Martin Truex Jr. I still got an autograph poster somewhere. Um, it's got just... Johnny Morris on it. It's got Carrie Earnhardt, and it's got Martin Truex Jr. on it. It's pretty cool. 
Just um, a really down-to-earth guy. I just sure. really like I actually I had never really met him before tonight, and just act like I, he had known me forever. Hey, man, what's up? This, you know, just su- super nice. I really liked him a lot. Hey, Ben, you're that guy that drove really fast on the interstate after Bobby Allison taught you how to race. <laughs> yeah, that and... That and a dollar somewhere might get me a cup of coffee and maybe even a speeding ticket. You just never know. You subbed for Vanna White at that Kmart in Daytona one That's time. That's right, I did. <laughs> and that got, yeah, and that didn't really get me very far either. Hey, that's all good, man. Um, yeah, like I said, Louis, to, to you know, to wrap up, it's been it's yeah. a blast. We're really excited to have fans back at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the Coca Cola Six Hundred. It's a it's a special event. Qualifying is special. Every event special. Anytime you see your name and your car number at the top of the pylon, whether it's winning the pole or winning the race, it's a big deal. Ask any driver. They'll tell you the same. So we can't wait to see it. Uh, ben, I think for episode 17, you can wave a checkered flag. Uh, it crossed the finish line on it. It's been a blast, as always, chatting it up with you. Um, love trading stories. Um, one of the most fun things that I, I think that we end up doing, Ben, is that we – we have a little plan in this podcast, but most of what we say is just organic and it just kind of goes off what the other yeah, one says. And I love that. And mm-hmm. I can't wait to do it again soon. And let me say this, Vanna White is a lot better looking than I am. I just want you to know that you knew that already, but I just want you to know that. <laughs> I have a face for podcasts, so, so I'm not going to judge you. Uh, speaking yeah, of judging I, though, would love it. If you guys throw a rating our way, wherever you're listening, we'd love to have your feedback. Um, get ready for a really fun uh, month of May, or rest of the month of May. Um, it's going to be a blast. Um, but in the meantime, for my buddy Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. We want to thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back just about as fast as Martin Truex Jr. was in the 2016 600. But I make no promises, probably not quite as fast as that. But in the meantime, so long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.